0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I recommend complimenting this episode with a nice glass of the red stuff. Our guest is Alexis Henderson, who burst onto the horror scene last year with the rave-reviewed The Year of the Witching, and now she's here to talk about her sophomore novel, House of Hunger. It's a lurid, luscious dark fantasy featuring steampunk trains, cavernous gothic mansions, and many, many goblets brimming with blood. I enjoyed it so much that I'm having to rethink my own stance on secondary world horror. Alexis and I discussed the collision of horror and fantasy, the erotics and politics of blood, and the double standards when it comes to female cruelty and perversion. We also talk a little about a certain bloody countess, who plays a big part in the background of House of Hunger. So this is easily one of my favourite books of the year, and I do hope you read it before or after you enjoy this conversation. Remember, you can support this show by signing up for Patreon. The link is in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com talkingscaredpod talking scared pod. All support is much needed and much appreciated, and I will show you such wonders in return. But for now, follow me to a house somewhere deep in the northern night, If the mistress comes calling, prepare your veins for drinking. Let's talk scared. Hi Alexis and welcome to Talking Scared.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you today.
0: I'm glad you're excited. So am I. How are things where you are?
1: Well, I am in Lansing, Michigan, um, in an apartment or a condo, actually a little condo um, that I haven't fully moved into yet. So everything is kind of empty. I'm sitting in what will one day be my office. But right now it's just me, my computer, a router and <laughs> a copy of House of Hunger that I stole from my partner because I have nothing <laughs> um, on me.
0: <laughs> so you've moved to Michigan.
1: I sure have. Yeah. This is actually where I was born. So um, I left when I was six and this is the first time um, I've been living here in like 20 years, I think. Yeah.
0: Oh, so you've completely thrown me out here because I thought you were Savannah and, and Charleston and all that stuff.
1: So I grew up in that area, like in the Southern Low Country. then briefly in the middle of COVID moved to Columbus, Ohio, and then I skipped up to Michigan. I think I've moved almost every year of the pandemic so far. Yeah, I've I've just been constantly on the go. It's been interesting. Just
0: to make sure that life doesn't get too easy in the middle of a global pandemic.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because that's a fun thing to do during a pandemic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the trouble is, when you say that, it makes me a little bit ashamed of myself because you've also written two books in that time and I'm still yet to finish my first. So that's a whole thing to confront.
1: (laughs) Not at all. No, I feel like writing during the pandemic was like the biggest challenge of my life. I fully had like a crying on the phone with my agent breakdown over a book that ultimately failed that I tried to write during the pandemic. And it was just like, it was so grueling. And actually House of Hunger, um, it, I drafted it uh, right after I sold the Year of the Witching, so I got that first draft out of the way before the pandemic started, and then it was like kind of my savior because I had such a hard time writing during like the worst of the pandemic. Like twenty twenty was just a bad creative year for me; it was rough.
0: So, you, but you had House of Hunger in your arsenal—that that's good.
1: I consider myself a slow writer um, for the most part. Um, I'm trying to remedy that now and pick up the pace a bit but yeah in general it's just kind of like pulling teeth sometimes to get those (laughs) hit those daily word counts.
0: (laughs) You're making me feel better about myself but anyway right well you've mentioned the book in question because your new novel is called House of Hunger and I would describe it as a baroque gothic treat. Could you give us introduction to your story to start us off on the right foot?
1: Yeah so um House of Hunger is like gothic, dark fantasy slash horror novel. Um, And I say dark fantasy because it is set in a um, second world, inspired loosely by like Victorian England and and bits of Europe. Um, It follows our main character, Marion, who works as a maid in a town called Crane and she lives in the slums and she really wants to escape to a better life. So when she sees an ad in the paper um, advertising for a position called a blood maid, which is a girl who sells her blood um, for the consumption of wealthy nobles in the North, she is immediately intrigued, and she ends up getting accepted into this position, going North to work for um, a countess called Lisbeth. And they develop this kind of dangerous cat and mouse infatuation, friendship relationship. It gets very tangled and messy, as one can imagine. Um, And while she's living in Lisbeth's house, she kind of begins to uncover some dark secrets about who Lisbeth is and the history of the house and the other blood maids um, she works with. So that is House of Hunger.
0: (laughs) I'm going to say straight off the bat, I loved this book. I I told you just off air that every year I do this top 10 of the year, and this is going to be riding high on that list. I can't see it being knocked too far down because I I really, really enjoyed it very, very much. I won't go on too much at length because I'd rather talk about the book than just lord it. But yeah, long-term listeners, you know, you can trust my opinion. Check this book out. It's great. Thank you. To start with, I'm fascinated by the power of opening lines and yours is an absolute cracker. I think, I think opening lines are an art form in and of themselves. And House of Hunger begins with the the sentence, before she was first bled, when she still had the name her parents gave her, Marion Shaw was a maid at a townhouse in the south of Prain." there's a lot to unpack there, a lot of implication and a lot of world building in just one sentence. And it's also got this kind of fairy tale flavour. Bit of a weird question, but do you remember writing that first line?
1: I absolutely do because it was um, one of the last things I changed about the book, I think, before going into copy edits. Um, <laughs> I rewrote that first line so, so, so many times because I just was never happy with it. And it was in that last round of edits, like a really small one where I finally was like, okay, I'm going to decide on this. And I, I read it to my partner like a million times over and I just kept tweaking it and I, I finally settled on it. So. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you like it because I was really anxious about that first line. It was not nearly as good in early drafts.
0: <laughs> I, I recognize that. I've, I've had this one first line in my head going round and round like a mantra. I almost had the line before I had the story and I had to kind of find the story that would fit the line. Um, and I've retooled it and re it and so many times, but I think they are important first lines. It's kind of like a firm handshake when you first meet someone. You want to know that you're in confident hands. And, and like I say, you pack a lot in to that first line the second world being part of it because the reference to praying this city I'm not gonna lie I went to Google to check if that was a real place <laughs> um and, and it's not so we are in secondary world territory here w- was that a necessity for this story or do you just like writing in, in other worlds because I know you did it in your first novel too
1: yeah so okay I feel like in some ways, I just feel like I'm a little bit too lazy. Is that the word I'm grabbing for? To be a historical fiction writer. So I, I grew up reading a lot of historical fiction. My mom is a huge fan of historical fiction. And I love historical fiction. But when it comes to like, um, kind of like proofreading to see if mm-hmm. things are historically inaccurate, that's not my strong suit. And I, I tend to get really like frustrated when I want something to work for the narrative. And then I'm like, oh, but... If I'm writing it in this place at this time in history, then like this detail doesn't make sense. So perhaps lazy isn't the right word. Maybe it's more like I I like a lot of freedom. And I think that working in a second world allows me to have that freedom to kind of build my own worlds and tailor them to the story I want to tell. I really admire historical fiction, though, and I think that I feel kind of comfy with certain aesthetics. Um, And so it just made sense to me to write worlds that run very parallel to the uh historical novels that i love and admire so much and the, the stories that i kind of grew up on but it's definitely my own spin and that's mostly just because i i like having my freedom <laughs> i think yeah. i think that's why i like to build my own worlds
0: no i get that because weirdly and i don't know why this is every time i try and write a piece of short fiction it always ends up being set in some weird kind of niche epoch of history um and like, I'm trying to write a thing at the minute set on a plague ship in the Black Sea. And like, I write a sentence and then spend like an hour re- on Wikipedia researching what a, a, the ship would have looked like and what the mass would have been called. And it's, it's so easy to just put hurdles in front of yourself, isn't it? You know, this becomes like kind of like a staccato writing experience where you don't get anything done.
1: Right. But I feel like there's just like nothing better though than like when you can tell that work is in, has been put into a book. Like I am, it's probably, it's- I I think I love reading those types of books more than any other, just because of the sheer detail and the care that goes into them. Um, I think that is just so cool. Like, I don't know. I I think it's amazing when people can do that like level of research and really like plant you in a time. Um, I I really do feel like I've been taken back and it's such an immersive experience. It's just that, I don't know, my my research skills are lacking in that area. (laughs) and Every time I sit down, like maybe this is the time that I'm going to write a historical fiction novel. And then I just start, coming up with names of cities that don't exist. And I'm like, I'll, I'll fill that in later. or I'll, I'll find a real city. And then it never happens. And then, you know, by that, the end of that first draft, it's just fantasy again. <laughs> you know, I'm making my peace with that.
0: Right. So I have gone on record on this show before to say that I really get turned off by secondary world horror. And then recently, I've encountered so many examples of books that I've loved, with secondary worlds, I'm starting to think maybe I need to reconsider my own opinion on that. Maybe I don't dislike it. Maybe I just read bad examples first. But I do wonder, when you're writing in a secondary world, does that force you to smash horror and fantasy together? Does it force a confrontation with fantasy?
1: Oh, it's just a great question. I I think so, but it that for me, it doesn't quite happen when I'm creating the story independent of like readers and publishing. So in those early drafts, I feel like um, this sense of like harmony between those two elements, mm-hmm. but then when it comes to like reader expectation and how I pitch the book to my editor or my agent and get people on board, then I feel a real tension and difficulty. Sometimes my editor and agent are incredibly supportive and I have really like my the readers I've encountered, both of them have been so wonderful to me, but I think there is this kind of expectation that you have to work against. Um, where it's like the fantasy readers bring fantasy expectations and the horror readers bring horror expectations. And sometimes it's difficult to appease both parties.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. And I, I mean, I've talked at length on this show about the almost pointlessness of, of genre division when you, when you are within the speculative space, because they all bleed into one another. But in, in your case, it is interesting from a purely marketing angle because yeah, it, this does sit very uneasily across those two genres, doesn't it? It's hard to say whether it is more horror or more fantasy, if that even matters.
1: Yeah, and I, I really don't even, I, I don't even know how to answer the question. I When I first sold my first book, The Year of the Witching, I just pitched it as dark fantasy, but even mm. that didn't quite fit for me. And then with House of Hunger, I'm kind of even more confused. I think that, Um, I've leaned more into gothic just because the aesthetics and the book cover are very gothic and also I think that um, gothic kind of is the closest thing we have to a genre that almost perfectly marries certain fantasy elements and horror and so that feels comfy to me but it's not it's not perfect because gothic doesn't necessarily indicate a second world and so I think that it's definitely it's definitely difficult to kind of pinpoint but I think that sometimes readers bring their own expectations to the book. And I noticed that like for the readers that like the book, right. If they read horror, they're just like, yeah, it's a horror novel. Obviously it's totally horror. And then for the readers that are like fantasy readers, if they like the book, they're like, it's fantasy. So I think that there's something happening maybe where when a reader picks up the book, they kind of, if they're enjoying it, they make it what they like. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's really, I think that's cool. Because yeah. it feels like this other people are kind of doing what should have been my job for me of like figuring out <laughs> what the book is and conceptualizing it, and I'm I'm quite grateful for that. Yeah,
0: I mean the other thing I'll say is Stephen King in I can't remember if it's Dards Macabre or in On Writing, but it's in one of them. I think it's Dards Macabre. He came up with an interesting sort of generic division where he said actually that there's the whole thing about pitting horror against fantasy is nonsense because horror is fantasy. Fantasy is the kind of governing term. King kind of said that you have science fiction and you have fantasy and they are the things that are in opposition and that horror is just a particularly dark subset of the fantastic. And I I think that makes sense, but particularly in this case, because yeah, well, we're getting the weeds. I don't think it matters. Basically it's a great book and it's got some really macabre stuff going on. So I don't think we can, should get too bogged down, perhaps in in any further excavation of which genre it is. Let's talk about setting, though, because the, well, the setting for your first book, the, the Year of Witching, felt quite inspired by the world you grew up in, Savannah, the most haunted town in America. Um, and I, I, actually, before I move on, let, let me before I move on to the inspirations behind House of Hunger, I have to ask, what was it like growing up in Savannah? Are you born and raised as a spooky person?
1: I I think so. I really I I think that Savannah is just such a a haunting and and beautiful place. And I think that there's a part of my brain that's just been like changed um, by having lived there. Um, Growing up there was really interesting because I was always surrounded by like so much beauty that I totally took for granted as a kid. It didn't really occur to me that everyone didn't grow up kind of like walking down cobblestone streets and under like canopies of like moss draped oaks. Like I just thought that that was normal. And um, I think that's why I Gothic aesthetics and southern Gothic influences um oftentimes crop up in my work. Um, because it was just kind of like a darkly enchanted upbringing Um yeah, I loved growing up there. It was wonderful.
0: Cause i I'd been to Savannah, weirdly, years ago, like 10, 10 years ago, more than that, God, like 15 years ago. God, I'm old. Um, and I just I was just blown away by it because it, it does feel haunted. And then when I read the year of witching. I know it's not a direct analog, but when you write about the dark woods and all that kind of stuff, it, it did feel like the American South had kind of permeated that story.
1: It was a strong influence for sure. And I was still living there at the time that I was writing it. And what's interesting is like, I was like, I'm not going to do a Southern Gothic. Like I'm not, I'm going to do something different. I, I, you know, I think I was kind of like doing that thing with the grass is greener. Where I was like, kind of like trying to look, draw inspiration from somewhere else. Um, And then I finished it and I was like, oh, this is just, (laughs) this is just the low country. (laughs) And I didn't even kind of realize it when I was writing. So it was a, it was a funny surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, To see the ways that Savannah and um, Bluffton also is another town where, as the town where I went to school, it's just like 40 minutes up the road from Savannah. Um, Those stories or those places sort of like reflected in the year of the witching. And I wasn't even aware of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: Well, and and if you take, If you take the Year of Witching as a kind of off-kilter Southern Gothic, you know, a Southern Gothic filtered through a a different second world lens, then I suppose that you could take the House of Hunger and say that that is European Gothic filtered through a similarly off-kilter lens. Because it does feel very European. Am Am I correct in that?
1: absolutely that was very intentional that yeah um I wanted it to feel like Victorian like praying to feel like Victorian London um and I was kind of thinking of like North and South um and 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 those sorts of those sorts of vibes um because I don't know it's just it was just kind of like a point of fascination for me and I was um I think I'm really inspired particularly by the aesthetics of that time but also um the tensions of that time, it's just an interesting time period. Um, and I was really wanting um, to kind of reimagine it in my own way um, because I just think there's so many interesting, like, social things that are happening then um, with like industrialism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And originally, it was kind of a tough sell to kind of pitch it because of people were like is this steampunk and I'm like no it's it's just like it's Victorian England like England with on the custom of industrialization They're like oh but there's it's fantasy but there's trains and I was like trying to trying to um, weave those influences in but still have it sit on the shelf as like fantasy dark fantasy or horror and not um, steampunk which was something I didn't kind of expect,
0: but. Uh... You mentioned trains and one of my favorite scenes in the entire book, the the, the, the moment where I realized I'd fallen in love with this story is when Marion catches this night train that takes her north. Uh, and it's a really, really like highly gothically charged setting. This, this kind of almost devilish, hellish train that's covered in demon artwork and, and full of, Rich people, and it's so creeping, and that's where I thought, oh, this is European because it felt like one of those great European train journeys you can still take. You know, start in Vienna and just head north or something like that. Uh, and I also love that the gothic trappings of that. That there are so many cool gothic stories that start with somebody getting a train from the metropolis and just heading further and further into the wild. Until they end up at this some outpost, with and it felt just like that, and it also felt quite a lot like Jonathan Harker's journey at the start of Dracula. They all felt like things that were in the mix with this.
1: Thank you so so much for I I that's high praise to me because I I was really trying to invoke that that feeling. I feel like. Um, I'm a huge fan of, like, uh, portal fantasies, and I I love a kind of, like, a portal fantasy that begins with, like, a train going from, like, one place Mm -hmm. to another. There's, like, too many books and movies to even list. Like, so many of them have that, like, train transition, and I wanted my own take on it because I just think it's so cool. And also, like, living in the U.S., our train system is tragic. (laughs) I I shouldn't bully Amtrak. It's not Amtrak's fault. Amtrak is great, but I wish we had more by way of, like, glamorous trains here in the U.S., um And so I think that I kind of romanticized that, and I I was really enjoying um writing all of those scenes. They might be they might have been my favorite some of my favorite scenes to write in the book or the trains. At one point, I was like, maybe I should just make the whole novel take place in the train, like the Orient Express or sort of situation, <laughs> because I was having a bit too much fun.
0: <laughs> oh, definitely write that book. Return to this world and write that book, like like yeah, the uh, Orient Express, but but Gothic. That would be great. The European thing, though makes sense because after all this book does hinge on a certain figure from european history and that's elizabeth bathory the bloody countess now i went into this book feeling really smug thinking i'd worked out this easter egg that lis it that the well we'll get to it but that she was based on elizabeth bathory and i thought i had this idea that you'd be so impressed when i when I asked about it and, and, you know, cue rapturous applause. And then, sadly, I turned the page and no, it's front and centre all along because Elizabeth's name, her surname is Bathory. So I was like, oh, God damn it, I thought I was smart. <laughs> but I am aware that some of my listeners may not be overly familiar with who Elizabeth Bathory was. So can I invite you to talk about her a little and their influence on your story?
1: Yeah. Um so Elizabeth Bathory was a, a countess um in Hungary. Um, and she was like lived in like the 1500s and she's known as the Bloody Countess. She is rumored to have been is it like the first female serial killer um and her her story inspired many of the vampire novels we know today like um Camilla uh, I think even Dracula drew inspiration, um, from this real life countess. Um, she was said to have killed her, like, like maids and servants in her home or castle, probably manor, um, killed them and then bathed in their blood, um, so that she would, um, appear youthful and young. And then it moved from just killing them, allegedly moved from just killing them to like torturing them, um, in increasingly kind of sadistic ways. And she was tried for these crimes eventually after many, many girls, were alleged to have gone missing, and um, I think she was, like, bricked in. That's correct, right? Correct me if any of this is sounding wrong. Um, but she was, like, bricked into her own home or jail cell, mm-hmm. and she she died there, so.
0: They, they refer to it as confined unto death, which yeah. sounds horrible. It's kind of like the worst kind of home arrest. Yeah, I mean, I, I have only the most kind of Wikipedia-level pop culture knowledge of, of Bathory, but I do know that she was thought to be epileptic. And at the time, one of the supposed cures for epilepsy was to rub blood onto the lips, blood of of non-epileptic people. And I've always wondered if that was the genesis of the accusations.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, it is, isn't it? Because I think that you can see that would grow and become this horrible game of of whispers. And all all of a sudden, she's, she's killing virgins and drinking their blood. But it's also often been said that she was, well, basically framed and that the accusations were just political propaganda. Do you have an opinion
1: I, I do. I I think that that is potentially plausible. I think that, you know, she wasn't in a position of power and there are definitely people who had mo- strong motivations to want to take that power from her. So I could certainly see how she could have been framed. But then on the flip side, the other part of me, I, I think I'm, I'm also like hesitant, I guess, because I feel like with women in history, when women create cruel like, do acts of violence, women um, commit cruel acts, cruelties um there's this like sanctifying that happens where people are like oh she wasn't so bad or like there's no way she could have done that and and they kind of like excuse it away um Mm -hmm. and I think it's almost as if like people don't believe that women are capable of true cruelty so I'm like maybe she did do it and we are just sort of like sanctifying her um, the way that we so often do women Um, I'm sure there's probably some, some explanation like that relates like sexism and our ideas and beliefs about women being like inherently kind or inherently genteel. But, um, so I don't know. I'm so conflicted. I don't, I don't think, I feel like this is one of those things where like, if there's an afterlife or I get to know everything, it's going to be one of my first questions. (laughs) Like (laughs) after I die, like what happened? Because I don't know.
0: It's one of those things where you feel kind of awful because obviously if it's true then people really suffered but at the same time because those people died so long ago you kind of feel a little bit freed from it and you you, a little bit you wants it to be real because it's a much cooler story than her just being persecuted you know true I I mean
1: that's true and I feel like it's like we I think people are naturally drawn to and, and sort of repulsed or shocked Mm-hmm. are especially appalled by female villains, particularly female killers, because we just we just think of that as a thing that men do. And there's something, I think, that is inherently unsettling to people about women who commit these kind of crimes. But also with that unsettling feeling comes a whole lot of curiosity.
0: Yeah, completely. I, I mean, in my head, there's a, a, a link for thematic reasons between Bathory and, you know, Delphine LaLaurie from
1: New yes. Orleans. Who,
0: yeah yeah I mean I won't go into it cuz I think I've mentioned it on the on the show before but essentially Delphine Lalaurie was was a, a a French semi-aristocrat who who basically did the most awful tortures to the enslaved people that she kept in a dungeon underneath their house and this is all real it's um and there's something about those figures those female figures from history who went so far beyond the pale who were so transgressive that they just become fascinating
1: yeah I 100% agree it's like it's it's fascinating and I think you know I, I think it's no accident that so many of the women who have committed these acts are oftentimes occupied positions of power mm-hmm. um in their societies like more so than the average woman because maybe it's just that like when they're enabled or in a position where they can um enact violence slash power against their servants like people who are um I guess I don't want to say beneath them, but like certainly when it comes to power, they're below them. Um, maybe it's like the power that kind of not provokes the violence, but enables it. Um, and that's my question with Ka- the Countess because like i I'm not sure whether she did it or not. However, she was certainly one of the few women in a position to kind of get away with that sort of large scale, you know, violence and cruelty, because I think few women had access to mm-hmm. the kind of privilege that she had. Um, and I think yeah, a lot of these women who who do these sorts of things are in kind of p- in a unique position that enables them to. and um, I sometimes wonder like if more women were in those positions, would we hear more um stories like this? i yeah, in general, I just don't trust rich rich people with their servants <laughs> it's just it's yeah, and I, I feel like with Bathory, it's just like mm,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, if we didn't have deviant rich people and their servants. We wouldn't have gothic fiction, though. So there is (laughs) that slight silver lining. One thing that has occurred to me as we're speaking is that if we play devil's advocate and say that Bathory, the real Bathory, was framed and that that it was basically a, a political witch hunt, then you've written a pair of books about women who are the victims of misjudgment is is that a link that you've already considered?
1: I did because I was, you know, like the Salem Witch Trials, like women, those women, you know, weren't actually witches. Um, mm-hmm. And then with Countess Bathory, also, you know, if she was innocent, then she too is kind of like an innocent victim. But I think, I think when I'm approaching um, like the very loose retellings that I tend to write, I think I'm less focused on the. Um, specific events that happened and more what people think about them so I know that some retellings are kind of like a direct answer to the history itself and mine are very much a direct answer to commonly held like beliefs or ideas uh, about those people or Mm -hmm. those like um, those histories and I think that's because (sighs) I think I like to kind of like approach the stories in my own way or in a, or in a way that at least feels fresh to me. Um, and so I think I like to adopt an angle where there's like a lot of uh, morally gray or kind of complex relationships uh, within the stories that I find myself fascinated with. Um, so with Elizabeth, like my challenge was I really wanted to make her a character that I liked. And you could see someone falling in love with that felt charismatic and funny and interesting and like someone I would want to be friends with whilst having this kind of darkness that frightened me. And then with The Year of the Witching, my previous novel, um, the witches are very morally gray in that I kind of believe that they're right. And I think that, you know, if I had to pick a side, I would definitely pick theirs, but not every action that they take. To do the right thing is one that I would necessarily co-sign. So I think that I just kind of like messiness in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, because I think, or, and I also think it's fitting because I don't really know. I don't know the truth about at least County's bathroom. Like I don't know exactly what happened. And I probably never will. So writing the story in kind of a complicated way just made sense because I think it's probably a bit of an expression of my complicated feelings. <laughs>
0: well, that's the perfect jumping-off point then for like the real, real meat of this conversation, um, which is that morally grey area. These relationships at the at the heart of this book in this house are, uh, yeah, they're, they're fascinating. And, and whether or not the real Bathory was falsely accused or not that there's no doubt that Elizabeth is guilty of. Guilty is a strong word to use there, but she is definitely doing these things. And But in your world, the bleeding of young women is front and centre. It's not torture. It's not some illicit thing. It's an exchange. And yeah. th- there are lots of nods throughout the story to this idea that being a blood maiden is no different to prostitution or working in service or any other way of essentially monetizing your body. And I can get on board with that. But it does feel like there is some complexity within all that. And I couldn't decide how you felt about it, about being a blood maiden and about the other forms of selling of the self. I couldn't work out whether you were presenting it as empowerment and ownership or as exploitation
1: am I'm, I'm kind of I'm glad you said that because I was at times I was worried that I was like showing my hand a bit too much I'm like are people gonna think that like all of this is an expression of like a soapbox like whether it's one or the other so for me personally uh, I've laughed about this because but um I I would 100 percent if I was in Marion's position 100% be a blood maid um, not too fond of needles I am very fond of pretty dresses and good food <laughs> so for me um, it would have been an easy choice, but I I think um, I I didn't want the story to um, necessarily be um, an empowerment story. I don't think there's anything wrong with empowerment stories in general. If I, if I had to say like describe *The Year of the Witching*, it is more of that kind of female empowerment angle. Um, with *House of Hunger*, I think there's nothing wrong with being a bloodmate. I think it's an ambitious and at times um, like intel, like just intelligent choice for young women in this world. Marion got the short end of the the stick, but I respect the decision that she made. And I think I would have made the same one. Um, but I didn't want, you know, the house of hunger necessarily to be like, like taking an obvious stance in, in that way, just because I don't think that Marion was necessarily, well, she is kind of getting on her soapbox. Like she's made her decision. Um, but I think that the her character is still a little bit defensive and, and trying to work through her own feelings regardless of like what she says to her, her friend Agnes or how she defends her decision. Mm-hmm. She has some complicated feelings about the decision she's made and some defensiveness. She's not in a position where she's at peace with it. And I wanted that to kind of be expressed first and foremost.
0: Yeah, because there's almost this sense throughout of this undercurrent of tension about losing who you are. Mm. And rather than rather than Marion seeming in any way perturbed, to be honest, by the actual realities of being a blood maiden. like She doesn't seem to care beyond a bit of squeamishness. She's not really bothered about the fact that Lisavette is drinking her blood. She seems far more concerned with the idea that all the finery and the good things and the change in status might, might mean that she loses herself. And there's lots of Lots of riffs on that, lots of scenes looking in mirrors and and saying to people, I I won't change, and her her friend's back in praying. And uh, yeah, it felt like that class mobility was far more of a concern for her than than actually just giving her blood over.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's exactly it. Like, I think that sometimes what I think about Marion is that if she had had a better handle on who she was before she'd come into Elizabeth's service, that a lot of things would have been easier and more clear for her. So I do Mm -hmm. think that like kind of her transition from one, like one world to a brand new one is definitely a threat to her identity and kind of her personhood as it would be, I think for anyone, when you're like thrown into a new world and a new society, um, it, it is a sort of, like, who am I now within this new context? I think we do use, like, our context to decide who we are, but had Marion had, like, a firmer sense of self, I wonder how the story would have been different. Um, but as it turns, she's, like, a young girl who's really struggling to find her purpose, and I think that so much of her previous life in Prane was just devoted to survival that she never really had to confront the question of, who am I, until there was, like, a direct threat to her um, kind of identity.
0: Definitely. And the other aspect of identity in this book is that there is a racial implication that I sort of discerned amongst all of this. And I'm not sure whether I'm seeing things that aren't there. But Irene, another character, is definitely a blood maid of colour, which is a strange sentence to say. And she's sold into Elizabeth's service, whereas all the others seem to enter more autonomously. And you also stress how the blood maids are indentured rather than employed. And it does feel like you're getting something here.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, um, the blood maids are, I wouldn't consider them to be enslaved, but there's definitely um, a compromise to their autonomy that just doesn't exist in other um, service professions, so I think, it, like as much as Marion says, you know, it's just no, it's no different than any other job. It's 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 just you know it's just work. I think that there is some um, level of ownership that the people who employ blood baits have over those in the, their service, and um, it was a complicated and specific thing to write because I didn't want I didn't want it to be um, necessarily like a, a metaphor for like chattel slavery, like what we've you know unfortunately what America was kind of built on um, because I think that that is something different and even more horrific entirely um, but creating this system that is in some ways sort of exploited not sort of, it's kind of very exploitative to to the blood mains was um, definitely like kind of like a delicate um, process because I felt like I needed to examine the kind of power disparity from all angles and of course yes, like Marion maybe could have been um, indentured to someone who was incredibly kind and, and, and gentle and would never harm blood maids. But is there any such thing as like an, a kind of ethical indentureship? I, I'm not, I don't think so. Um, and and then then it began, to, I began to really snowball because I was like, well, is there is there an ethical, let's just say an ethical work environment in general that has the same disparity of power? One person has so much power and money and the other person has next to nothing. Like, is there an ethical model um, or way of looking at that system or that exchange of labor and money in a way that's ethical. And I I really couldn't answer the question. Um, I was like, I, I felt like it was getting like increasingly more like Marxist and like, I don't know, it was very much in my own head. Um, as I was working through those questions, because I do feel like sometimes it's like almost like a spectrum of like, you know, horrific abuse and powerlessness to just like what we consider like a more egalitarian, like work, Environment, <laughs> work environment feels so strange when I'm talking about <laughs> second world fantasy, but that's, that's all I'm coming up with. Um, and blood mains are kind of situated somewhere along that spectrum, um, and it was interesting to kind of tease that apart. I
0: know what you mean when you say like talking about details like that in a secondary world, but it is a, quite a domestic novel, um, and there's lots of talking about finance and pensions and and balancing the books and all that kind of thing. And there's one bit where a certain character called Tiago, who is, he's kind of a finder. He goes and he's basically a pimp. He recruits these blood maidens and he says something like, you know, blood makes the world go round and, you know, the, the and, and the work, like the, the trains run on blood and it's, it's a metaphor, but this, this idea, like you say, of capitalism and Marxism, means of production and all those things that come into that kind of commentary. And it's all about literally blood.
1: Yeah which in some ways kind of feels more honest because i'm not sure our world is t- is that different from from the world i wrote in the book well that's so kind I'm of like what i'm getting
0: at that. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the, you know like people when it comes down to it it is blood that is making the world run because it's people's lives and it's it's rendering the very real use of you know people's blood and muscle and sinew and just making it slightly more figurative and, and pretty <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I felt like that's that's kind of like what I was trying to aim for when I was writing. It's like, you know, everything when I first approached the book, um, I, I it felt so strange, to, you know, the world and, and the blood and, and people's kind of passe attitudes toward like things that I thought were grotesque and a little horrific. But then the more I wrote about it, I'm like, I'm writing House of Hunger. And then I turned to the news and they're talking about like, how an Amazon Warehouse was like, destroyed by a tornado and they weren't allowed to leave during the tornado warning because like they had to work and like the people mm-hmm. weren't letting them go. And I'm like the, the, our world is not so different than the, the world that I wrote. And I think that like seeing those two sort of mirrored and having my own complicated feelings about um, like capitalism and um, c- complicity and all, all of that, it made how I mean the world of House of Hunger in some ways feel less horrific to me because I was – I was like, well, it's up front and they're blunt about where they're sourcing their kind of like labor from. Mm -hmm. And I think in our world, so like a little bit of a game of shadows and mirrors, like we kind of hide these darker truths from ourselves because it's maybe difficult to stomach.
0: Yeah, I I found horror to be a really great vehicle for my brand of angry politics it, it it just
1: yeah yeah and I love horror for that reason yeah. because it forces you to confront the, the ugly things <laughs> yeah
0: well and, and on the flip side of that the ugly things you have no qualms about the erotics of bloodletting either because the relationship between the blood maidens and Elizabeth is, is openly sexual and, and the bloodletting itself is is part and parcel of that isn't it
1: yeah yeah sh- I think I think that there is something inherently romantic. I don't know about like giving your blood to someone else for them to drink. I mean, it's just, it's so intimate. I, um, and I've always kind of been like fascinated, um, by that. And I didn't, when I wrote House of Hunger, I didn't want to be coy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, decided pretty early on to take this blunt approach which just that like everybody knows what's going on. The blood maids know what's going on with Lisbon and other blood maids, even if they don't discuss it openly or directly nobody's in the dark about the kind of intrinsic connection between like blood and um sensuality and um yeah it was fun to kind of explore it in that way too because I think that when I wasn't trying to like make those connections like secrets or plot twists I was able to kind of um analyze them more deeply without thinking like, okay, how is this gonna fit into the plot? If like Marion doesn't know that like, you know, Elizabeth and Irene have this thing, is she gonna be heartbroken? I didn't have to think about any of that because it was all out in the open. It was just kind of assumed to be the case. Well
0: yeah, it's a quite frankly sexual book and all the way through, the thing I kept thinking, how this story would read if Elizabeth was a man, um, one scene to kind of crystallize that. There's, there's, there's a moment when Marion stares through a keyhole and she witnesses what is quite a perverse threesome. I won't spoil mm-hmm. it for people. Um, and it reads as challenging as it is. But I, I yeah. think it would be a very different scene in tone if Lisovet was a powerful male figure. Right. But I don't know and I've got to be honest, I don't know if that's just my male gaze turning female sexuality into something more titillating than horrifying. Does that make sense? Am I reducing it because I'm a guy and I find that kind of thing hot? You, do you know what I mean? It's it's hard to judge.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting. Like, I'm, I'm a queer woman and I wrote certain scenes and I was like, huh. I definitely thought about how certain scenes would read if Elizabeth was not a woman, and I think, like, what it came to in the end was, like, well, she's not, she's not, I mean, she's not a man, Um, it's, it's, it's something different entirely, does that mean it's better or morally right, I don't think so, Um, absolutely not, Um, but um, it is, it is its own thing and the relationship and the feelings about it, I think are different in light of the fact that the context is different. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it's kind of, it's interesting to kind of challenge people's sense of morality or questions, because I think in some ways we've been schooled um, about how to respond to certain, to certain um, things or concepts or images. But when a key detail is changed, like one of the characters involved being a woman and not a man and expressing her desire to another woman, who's receiving that desire, like, it kind of shifts or challenges um, the emotions that we're told to have in response. Um, I'm I'm like, I'm kind of tiptoeing because I don't want to like spoil the scene that yeah, I'm referring sure. to. Yeah. You. But um, yeah, it is, it is really interesting. I think that like, I think as a queer woman, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the way I respond to what I wrote is really different to the way that like a straight woman might respond. And I think that that's very fair. Elizabeth was just a really complicated character in that way. Because I thought, you know, she's not she's kind of dark and kind of evil in the ways that predatory men are. And and, Mm -hmm. and I won't um, I definitely won't disagree with that. But and yet she's different.
0: And that's what I'm getting at. I've I've inevitably got this kind of male gaze thing. No matter how much I try and be critical, I can't get around that entirely. And there is something about Lisbeth's behavior. That is it's no different. It's no different at all from a Weinstein. It's somebody who is in complete Mm -hmm. power of a situation and it's exploitative. But because she is female and her victims is too strong a word, but you know, what I mean, because the other party is female, that is somehow coded differently than Mm -hmm. if she was male even though we know the power structure is exactly the same, it's still coded differently. And I find that really interesting.
1: So do I, I think that that's why, like, I think sometimes like queer villains are among the most interesting because you, you are confronted with, um, for very familiar questions and scenarios. And then, your feelings about them can be radically different and the ways that the stories are told can be radically different and received can be just different. And with Elizabeth, I was like, wow, this is a tale as old as time. Like the things that <clears throat> Elizabeth's doing, um, this is a story I'm familiar with, and yet it feels so different when it's two women. Um, and I think the conclusion that I came to, or as close to one, because I don't think I have a conclusion is that like, I think the power imbalance is, is responsible for so much of um, the darkness and, and the kind of more twisted side of Marion's relationship with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is kind of like using that to her um, advantage. And I think that the reason that Elizabeth's behavior is so reminiscent to to that of men is because she's occupying a, a similar position of power and using her power in a very similar way. Um, without giving away too much of the book, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth's kind of has. A, kind of had a villain in her own life um and their dynamic was well, not kind of explained fully in great detail in the book you can kind of see the parallel between how Elizabeth interacted with the villain in her own life when she was in a lesser position of power and how she then relates to um blood maids when she occupies the position of power so that was really interesting because I think like I, even as a queer woman writing this, I'm like not separate from the male gaze. And Elizabeth also isn't, um, as a woman operating in this society. And so to see the ways that's sort of expressed both through my own writing and through the characters, it was, it was, it was so complicated. It was, it was, it was something I questioned a lot. And I'll be completely honest. Like I was, I had been and probably still am a little bit, uh, worried, um, about the ways that this book will be read. And I think, yeah. It, it's just like, it was complicated. And I think that people are going to have complicated feelings um, about it. And yet it was a story that I felt like I had to tell. So I yeah, well, I mean, <laughs>
0: complicated feelings are good. I mean, it's, it's a horror novel. You don't want people to come away from it with any, it's, you can't all be tied up in a bow, you know? And, and I also think certain revelations late in the book do clarify some of these positions a little. I think I think that helps settle down any discomfort people may have earlier, shall we say. Yeah, I'm gonna. That's about yeah. as, that's about as spoiler free as I can go. Um, but it is a very it's a very sex positive book, and and the whole the whole House of Hunger is is one big sort of bacchanal, and and in parts it, it made me think a little of a a more palatable version of Dissard's 120 Days of Sodom. You know, you've got these noble people who are just up to all sorts, and I enjoyed how unquestioned the pansexuality of it all was and and Marion's own sexuality is never questioned and i did wonder as you said you're, you're a queer woman did you sort of take the chance to write a secondary world that was just free of homophobia
1: yeah i did and i was just kind of like you know what i can do what i want here and i i think that i i, I was just i wasn't really too interested in writing a story about a closeted character mm-hmm. um it, and I think that in large part that's because my own relationship to, with my sexuality has not been—I haven't really had a closeted experience. Um, I'm just kind of like, I guess, more blunt in the same way that Marion is um, about my my own feelings in that realm. And so when I wrote Marion, it just felt like the most natural thing in the world for her to be this way. And I was like, well, if if this is the way that she expresses herself, then society must allow for it because you know that's how she feels. And so I had to kind of write a world that reflected this kind of frank um, relationship she had with her own desire and sexuality. So that was refreshing and fun for me because I think that the world is so dark and that there are so many um, there's so many ways that people are like marginalized and persecuted within this world. But um, having Marion be free in this one way, it felt refreshing. And I enjoyed writing those parts of the book for sure. R-
0: refreshing is the word because most versions of this story would start with Marion being either... Virginal or you know conflicted, and it would be a journey towards becoming, and it's not it's just kind of as you say, it's just that's established, we're not going to question that, and it it really frees up the story for more interesting stuff. But in terms of this world, you, you just said it's dark and you know in many ways quite a quite a dismal place for a lot of people, but you you sketch the the wider world of this novel quite sparingly. We have scenes in train. we have this awesome train ride, and then after that it's a very interior novel within the, the house, and I think that kind of reflects the inward-looking culture of the house itself. But I would like to know more about the wider world. So there are all these references to other great houses, like, you know, the House of Fog, the House of Doves, many, many more. Did you just pick evocative words, or have you built your own extensive lore?
1: So it's kind of a mix of both. Like, there's some there was actually scenes that took place at the house of fog that um, got cut for very good reason, um, and there's a couple of other houses where it's like I know what they look like, I know what the interiors look like, like, and I have kind of fully like um, fully drawn, fully illustrated ideas of like what those places are. And there's other places that have kind of like the way I see it is kind of like fallen into ruin. Like so many of the great houses have to where they're kind of a shadow of themselves anyway. And, um, I don't have fully illustrated ideas of what those houses might've looked like in their heyday. Um, but I, I think that with house of hunger, it felt a little bit like, I mean, it is on an Island. It's actually set an Island, but Mm -hmm. symbolically it kind of felt like an Island where when you're there, everything else falls away. And that was my experience while writing it too. Um, and yeah, yeah, there is like a whole other world beyond it. But I think that what I kind of almost refer to as like the Elizabeth effect, she makes the world feel small or like mm-hmm. al- like almost like it's contained just to her. Like when she, once you're in her orbit, you're only kind of seeing her and the world sort of shrinks. Um, and I think that's in part why the world is so focused on House of Hunger. And there's just like very little about what's beyond that. Had Marion spent some more time in praying, or maybe perhaps gone to like a different house, I wonder, I, I really do think that she would have explored the world more and we would know more. But um, I think that Lisbeth Elizabeth is incredibly isolated because of her own like illnesses. Um, and I think that she isolates everyone else along with her, including me, <laughs> while I was writing it.
0: <laughs> I mean, you mentioned you wrote it quite a while back now, but has your imagination left this world now or do you still return to it to think of other stories you could tell there
1: I I do return to it from time to time and i have like considered I don't I'm like treading gently once again because I don't want to like promise anything I um mm-hmm. but I've I've definitely considered writing like novellas or short stories just about different houses um
0: okay you right you've got my vote you've got my vote yeah <laughs>
1: Thank you. I would, I'm, I would be, I, I would be open to that if the right story comes along. Um, because I, I've, I've often thought to myself, wow, I'm sure that there's other girls in this world who, whose experience at a different house, maybe the House of Doves or some other house that sounds more friendly, um, is almost like a fairy tale, and it could be a, a completely different novel, a completely different storyline.
0: I would love to see this story continue. I would just love it to see it continue and expand. I was just. I was just hooked by this world, even as small as it is on this house. I just, you did the perfect amount of kind of, give us the, enough for the story, but then allude to a wider fantastical world that, you know, there are all these stories yet to find. I, I'd love you to go back to it, but no pressure, no pressure.
1: I will, I will definitely consider it, and <laughs> you know, if if I do end up doing it and come with like, and I, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> I will. I, I will DM you on Twitter, like, I did it. I came up with something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, I mean, I hope to answer the the last question about the book, having just said, please write more. You do say in the afterword that writing the book was quite a harrowing experience. Now, I'd expect it to be a complete blast. But if it's not prying too much, can you tell us why it was such a tough experience to write this?
1: Well, so originally I was supposed to write the sequel to the year of the witching. Um, and that did not happen. It was like the book I, I, I mentioned, I, I wrote a book during the pandemic that didn't work. I just wasn't happy with it. wasn't working. I fought so hard for that book. It just did not turn out. Um, it was that book. It was the sequel to the year of the witching. So I was in like full burnout and, and in the aftermath of writing that failed novel when I had to come up with something else. And what I came up with was um, rewriting the draft of House of Hunger that I had written like almost like two years ago, I think at the time. Um, so House of Hunger was like kind of like the book that pulled me out of like my emotionally devastated, burnt out mire. Um, and I think it was difficult for for that reason. Um, I felt like I was kind of like, trying to meet the expectations of people that I felt like I had disappointed by not delivering the book that I was originally supposed to. And perhaps I'm putting too much pressure on myself there. I'm not even sure how many people were like that devastated or disappointed, but I felt like a failure at the time. Um, And so I felt like there was a lot hinging on this book. And I felt like it's already difficult to write a second book. But when you're writing a second book and also trying to like compensate for the fact that the book that you are supposed to write, you failed to, it's like double the pressure. And I really felt like I had to do something that was like the absolute best of my capabilities and nothing less or else it just was going to fail. And so a lot of it was a head game and I was like um, just a psychological struggle Mm -hmm. um, trying to sort through all of my emotions and not bring them with me onto the page. And I think somewhere in the middle of that rewrite, I began to actually have fun. I was like, wait, I'm like enjoying writing again. Like this world is like, I'm kind of falling in love with it. I'm falling in love with Lisbeth and, and I'm falling in love with the house and I want to live here. And it became like, instead of becoming this like crushing responsibility, it became kind of like a very dark, very spooky sort of sanctuary for me. Um, Yeah. So that was the story of, of writing it.
0: I mean, are you working on something now? Have you got another book in the pipeline?
1: I do, and they're not announced yet, so I can't say much, hmm. but I'm actually working on two, two books right now, one of which um, is, they're both actually kind of gothic, um, and uh, I can say I think, I don't know if this book will actually turn out because I haven't actually showed it to anybody, um, but it, it's gonna if, if it does turn out and it does work out, it'll probably be my first book that's at least somewhat set in our world. So that's interesting and new for me, and I'm kind of excited um, to tackle that. It'll have all the same like darkness and and, and magic present House of Hunger and The Year of the Witching, but I really wanted to write something that had a more contemporary setting just to see if I could. So that's been exciting, but I feel like the, the, the trouble is I'm I'm having to like rethink dialogue a little bit because I'm, like people don't talk like this in the 21st century, like <laughs> to freshen up a bit. But yeah.
0: I always finish by asking if you can recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why.
1: Yeah, so um, I want to recommend *A Dowry of Blood* by St. Gibson. Um, it's like a retelling of uh, *Dracula's Bride*. It is such a beautiful read. Her like her prose is beautiful. Saint has a real gift. It's being, uh, it was actually originally self-published, but it's um, being re-released. I think it comes out on October 4th uh, with Orbit Books. Um, The cover is gorgeous. Um, And the story, it's just, it's swept me away. And I've been really interested in reading um, shorter books lately. I think there's just something amazing about someone who could like deliver a full immersive story in like just very few words. Mm -hmm. And a Dowry of Blood does that and more. I mean, it. I could not put it down. Um, I absolutely devoured it. And I think that like anybody who likes gothic horror or if you're interested in House of Hunger, like that is a book for you, A Dowry of Blood. I can't recommend it enough.
0: I've always been fascinated by by Dracula's brides. They don't get enough mileage in in, in the original novel because it's one of the key scenes and then it just ends and I just wish we knew more you
1: should definitely check it out it's it's just so imaginative and inventive um it's great it's a great read I think you'd really like it
0: cool um and last question Alexis what truly scares you
1: I was so excited for this (laughs) for this question because I have severe arachnophobia like really bad like like panic attack, like if I see a picture of a spider that pops up in a video and I wasn't ready for it, I will drop my phone and start crying, like I am horrified, like so terrified um, of spiders to the point where I'm actually like thinking about seeking therapy for it, I'm actually, um, my partner is a psychologist and she's like maybe maybe you should consider (laughs) seeing someone to talk about this, I have no idea why I'm so scared of spiders, I have a couple of theories involving wolf spiders that I've like stumbled across and ugh, I don't know um right but I have severe arachnophobia
0: well I I think you wouldn't believe it but I think in 111 episodes you're the first person to say arachnophobia
1: really yeah
0: isn't that crazy yeah I, um, I
1: I'm ashamed to say I fear it more than like death illness or I I love my family but I'm just saying like bone deep terror it's spiders more than anything else even more than like losing my life or anybody like I, it's inexplicable and weird but yeah I, thought, I, I was so sure I wasn't gonna be alone on this one
0: <laughs> no I, I, it's just I'm a mix I, I'm I've kind of I mean I wasn't I wasn't paralyzed in that way but I've got over my fear of arachnophobia I can deal with spiders now which is good because my wife cannot um but I still don't like them but I've realized that I, cause I I was posting photos of this gigantic thing that's living in my kind of garden shed and I realized that it was a bit unfair to just put that on Twitter. So I, I had to learn how to do the thing where you, you know, where you have to click it to see the picture. Cause I oh, thought, I yeah, don't, want to do yeah. home, don't want to just like launch onto someone's home screen. <laughs> um,
1: I so appreciate that. <laughs> I so appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I do not like them either. Um, so, well, that is, that is a perfectly valid terror to finish on. I, uh, I cannot Thank argue you. at all. Right, House of Hunger. You know, everyone knows when when my voice gets earnest like this that I really, really love the book, and I really, really love this book. It's out today. If you download this on the day it comes out, twenty seventh of September, I think UK listeners have to wait a week more. But I just heartily recommend everyone read this book because it manages to be both an absolute page turner, it's quite sexy as well, and it's also got substance. As you can tell by our conversation, properly loved it. Thank you for writing it, Alexis, and thank you for talking Scared.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was actually, like, an absolute joy to talk to you. I really enjoyed this.
0: So I really do need to rethink my stance on secondary world horror. Up until now, I've always found that it diminishes the stakes if everything takes place in an entirely different universe, and well, that makes no sense to begin with anyway, because some of the highest stakes fiction ever written is entirely second world fantasy. Frodo and the Ring, for example. But in horror, it neuters things for me. I don't mind portal fantasy or portal horror. I love King's The Talisman and Fairy Tale and more recently something like T. Kingfish's The Hollow Places. But I have always needed that partial anchor in our reality. Not so much. Anymore. The walls have been coming down already, but House of Hunger has got me newly convinced that horror can be entirely otherworldly and still work. Maybe, like so many things, it's just a matter of the right story and some good writing. And this is really good writing. It's lush and evocative and sexy, and it it does that thing I love, which is alluding to a deeper, wider lore just beyond the confines of the story being told. I can't wait for whatever Alexis writes next, whatever world it takes place in, although I do hope she returns to this one to flesh out some of these other houses. This is one of those books that I can unreservedly say I think you should buy. And that's not something I say often, to be honest, because it's a big responsibility to recommend someone spend their hard-earned cash on something that I like. Speaking of which... How are we all coping in this capitalist end times? I suppose it could be slightly worse. We, we could be selling our blood as our only resource. But sometimes things feel not much short of that. I do want to say, in such times, that if you can, support writers. If you have some cash, buy a book. Because I've been thinking, and for the price of an expensive beer or a couple of coffees, you can buy something that someone has spent a year of their life creating. I saw a tweet from a major publishing figure in the UK this week that estimated a full-time novelist would need to sell somewhere between thirty-seven and 45,000 copies of their book to make a 30 grand salary on royalties. Now that seems like madness to me, and if we can help with single units here and there, then I think we should. I think as readers we should all try and mobilise our own transfer of wealth, by putting it in the pockets of people who entertain us and make us dream when times are as shitty as these. Now, this isn't a lecture. I know people have different levels of struggle in their own lives, but it's just a recognition of the fact that culture tries to imply that writers are part of the elite, when in fact they're killing themselves to make ends meet and give us stories. Yeah. On that note... I also want to say an especially huge thanks to all the patrons who support this show. I literally couldn't make this show viably without your help and you know, thank you so much. If anyone else wants to contribute and get regular bonus stuff in return the link is in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talking scared pod. As due recognition of people's generosity and making sure that the output on that bonus feed contains both really fun extra chat from the main show guests, as well as regular standalone, unique episodes diving deeper into broader themes. Some are just me whittering at my wall, some include experts from the field, from academia, wherever I can get people to talk to me from. I have an episode going live soon that will trace the history of the werewolf in literature. I've got one already recorded about California gothic as a subgenre, And the House of Leaves deep dive went live just last week. So those who contribute, thank you so much. I know I'm being long-winded here, but it really does mean a lot. And, you know, anyone else, please get involved. Anyway, that's enough begging for change. Onward to next week, when I'll be joined by the person that I called the voice of the contemporary female experience in horror. It's Rachel Harrison returning to the show after two years to talk about her new werewolf novel, Such Sharp Teeth. It's a great chat and it culminates in the best ever answer to the question, what truly scares you? If you want to contact me to talk about anything horror related or anything else, you can reach out as usual to talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or you can find me on Insta and Twitter at talkscaredpod. I'm pretty chatty, you'll find. I'm I'm yet to grow too big for my adoring fans. (laughs) So yeah, get in touch. Follow, like, subscribe, review, all that helpful stuff. It's amazing. Till then, buy your ticket, head somewhere new. Remain suspicious of the excessively rich. And in case we forgot, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.